At the start of the COVID outbreak, the world saw firsthand just how popular Rome was. Uh, Flights from China met tourists and flights from all over the world. And Italy became an initial COVID hotspot. The world seems to like Italy and Rome very much and for good reason. In Paul's day, Rome was an even more incredible city than it is today, I take it. The capital, the heart of the mighty Roman Empire. As I shared briefly at the weekend in, Paul's enthusiasm to visit Rome was contagious for me while I was reading the book of Romans while on my holiday. And Ash said to me, Dave, how are you feeling about going back to work? Partway through, and I thought, hmm, Romans helped. I was having a nice restful holiday. I long to see you, Paul writes to the Christians. I long to see you. Why is that? Why return to Sydney from this nice holiday? Why start home groups again? Why go through the motions of church and youth ministry, elders and committee meetings, prayer gatherings? I long to see you. There's something really valuable in Paul's mindset. And I must say it was contagious as I had a yearning to come and see you as well. He doesn't just give instructions here. He gives testimony. He gives example. And it's available to us for free today simply by being here to listen and to read. I shared also on Saturday of our weekend in that uh, growing up I sensed we had real golden years in the church I grew up in. We've had golden years in other churches I've been in, golden days, maybe the days ahead of us. And golden days are those in which Christ is honoured. It's not all about church growth, though that's wonderful. He may give numerical growth. But Paul saw golden days together for the church in Rome ahead. And his high expectations of what God might do can instruct and inspire us. So first then, in verses 8 to 15, Paul leads us through his own anticipation. Why Rome, Paul? Why are you so excited to be there? What are you expecting to accomplish to see. And second, in verses 16 to 17, Paul, his example again, raises our boldness this time. First, anticipation. Robert Murray McShane said, what a man is on his knees before God, that he is, and nothing more. What a man is on his knees before God, that he is, and nothing more. What we pray about shows what we care about, what we fear, how our desires for ourselves and others align or don't align with what interests God and what he wants for us. What a person is, what a man is on his knees before God, that he is and nothing more. If you wonder what to make of Paul, look at his prayer with me and decide for yourself what he is. Verse 8. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is being reported all over the world. I love hanging out with thankful people. Probably most of us do like hanging out with thankful people. It's so easy. Uh, They see me and others as a blessing. Paul's prayers usually start with thanks through the New Testament. His ministry flows out of thankfulness, and I take it people sensed that. Why then is Paul so thankful here? He's writing to Christians in a church he didn't plant and hasn't even visited. Paul thanks God and cares that people know the Lord Jesus. As visitors come along to a new year for youth group, as they did on Friday night, 
Uh, God's Spirit was prompting me as I saw kids. I didn't know who they were, but I, I saw kids and he prompted me to thank him and pray for them. Paul is grateful for the thrill it is that the Christian movement was spreading in the heart, the capital of the Roman Empire. It's being reported all over the world. The news from little Nazareth, little Jerusalem, the gospel of Jesus has reached mighty Rome. Who knows, it may just spread everywhere from there, Paul might have thought. Now, it's an acquired taste for Christians. Prayer sheets in bulletins, what are they for? Missionary newsletters, why don't they just leave us alone and get on with their own lives? Reporting new Christians here, a new church there. People might wonder, why do we pray this week for people in Germany or Syria or Turkey in our prayer sheet? Paul is grateful. He's excited about the gospel's embrace. He's seen God at work in Jerusalem, in Corinth, in Ephesus, in Antioch. What will God do with our time together in Rome or in Sydney in the 21st century? Our pastoral team, small team, have seen God do his saving work in churches in rural New South Wales, Canberra, Strathfield, Croydon, Africa, Mongolia, Ashfield, and more. And if I ask around, I'm sure we get hundreds of places. Together, we've seen God mightily at work. Why should we not expect God to do wonderful works here? It was with anticipation I left teaching in a Bible college to come and pastor this church. God works mightily, and most commonly through churches like ours. The church is the primary, the default The main means God works in the world through the local church. And so Paul teaches me to pray thankfully, enthusiastically, and expectantly what God might do in and through and beyond us as we love and follow him. So let's grow in this and in ways that please him. Look again at his prayerful expectancy in verses 9 to 11. God, whom I serve in my spirit in preaching the gospel of his Son, is my witness how constantly I remember you. It's nice, isn't it? God notices all of his prayers. Perhaps that is what makes him pray all the more. God knows. He's my witness how constantly. Verse 10, in my prayers at all times, I pray that now at last by God's will, the way may be opened for me to come to you. I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. Isn't verse 12 interesting? The great Apostle Paul expected to be encouraged by the faith of ordinary Christians in a church that may not have been around very long at all. And coincidentally, we've just had a highly respected, seasoned servant of the gospel come to our church last weekend. And just with one afternoon with us, many have shared with me how encouraged they were by his short visit. We could say that he imparted to us some spiritual gift And as I walked him to his car at the end, he said what an encouragement it was to him personally to see our earnest faith in the Lord Jesus. What if the Apostle Paul joined our gatherings or followed you to work and watched you engage in a negatively charged teacher's staff room? He might see you care for patient after patient in a busy hospital schedule. He might see you warmly greet the new employee like no other, because 
You're a Christian and strangers have value. Paul might visit one of our elderly church members constrained to hospital, constrained but still sowing seeds for the gospel to nurses and patients. The Apostle Paul might leave that hospital more determined to press on for Christ himself, as I did last week on a hospital visit. Paul might go with you to high school, university or Bible college and say, wow, great to see people training in the arts and in the sciences in campus Bible studies, preparing to contribute to the world in Christ's name. Others preparing specifically for church ministry. And he might just say, you know, you remind me afresh to rub shoulders with the world as you live for the Lord Jesus in it, as you go about your world in high school and university. In Rome, Christians were sometimes risking isolation, imprisonment, death, execution even. Uh, Nero's persecutions only some years away. In our case, Paul might see you preparing kids' church material, home group studies, coming to church early for music pre- uh, practice, or having prepared food for morning tea, or back at your house to invite people for lunch. He might see you half asleep in the mornings, with the Bible in your lap after another rough night with your pain or with waking kids. And Paul might think, I'm really encouraged by you. I want to be faithful like you. Yes, Paul is excited about the effect observant, faithful, enthusiastic Christians can have upon each other when they share space and days and weeks and years together. Golden days. Expectations. God is at work through disciples in fellowship. In verse 13, Paul seems to speak to them like a seasoned farmer addressing fellow labourers in an orchard. Your labour in Rome in the Lord is not in vain, I think he wants to say to them. Let's get to work. Let's sow, water, prune, fertilise, pursue health and pray God would give the growth. Verse 13, I plan many times to come to you. Our plans don't always come to fruition. God's will always does in order that I might have a harvest among you. That's Paul's desire, just as I have had among the other Gentiles. A harvest at DPC? What would that look like? And notice the ways anticipation, excitement, enthusiasm. On the one hand, on the other hand, we have duty, obligation language, but they're both weaved together for Paul. They're not enemies. Most ministries combine exciting opportunity with duty and obligation, inconvenience. They start with daunting sign-up sheets and the prospect of inconvenient commitments. Suffering, we might even call it. At Bible college, I was encouraged in ministry not to just try to do what I enjoy, but to try to enjoy that which I must do. See the two strands there together in verses 14 to 15. I'm a debtor, I'm obligated, both to Greeks and non-Greeks, the civilised and less civilised in, in their thought world. And yet, verse 15, that is why I'm so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. Obliged and yet eager. Eager and obliged. First then, let's catch, as a church, Paul's anticipation. And secondly, let's catch Paul's boldness. Boldness is the result of point two, this confidence in the gospel. What is it about the gospel that inspires high expectations, boldness even? Why be expectant and bold? And the big reason we see here 
that Paul was enthusiastic to visit Rome comes in verse 16 itself. For I am not ashamed of the gospel that I'm bringing with me. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's like the famous Old Testament statement, as for me and my family, we will serve the Lord. Here we stand. We're not ashamed of the gospel. This glorious news of God entering his world to save us. And we could do worse than to repeat this bold statement a hundred times to ourselves each day. Meditate on it. Let it challenge and fortify us to own what Paul is owning here. I am not ashamed of the gospel. Now, some in our world think the gospel is ridiculous, a dangerous relic. And we're dinosaurs if we believe such things. Some coming together to, uh, weekly to hear and pray and sing. We are not ashamed of the gospels. Doing that together, however, helps us when we're back in the world, when we separate again. The temptation to be ashamed of the gospel is not new. You remember Peter himself denied Jesus, denied knowing him, when asked by a servant girl, and then wept bitterly afterwards. If you've been hiding as a Christian, following him privately but not publicly, I'd encourage you to make today a day of weeping. And when you wake up tomorrow, to say with Paul, no more, no more fear, no more cowardice, no more evangelical, that is, gospel Christian on Sunday, Chameleon Christian on Monday. Not another day will my fear of people surpass my loyalty to you. Remember, Jesus himself warns, Mark 8, if anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, you can't say that anymore, David. It's what Jesus says. If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation... The Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory. It is our lost world. It's our adulterous and sinful generation that should be ashamed. And as we address God, we should be more ashamed of the world and our part in its sin than we are ashamed of this world's loving Saviour. Of all the things to be ashamed of, the gospel itself, the great shame remover, is not one of them. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. But more than repeating this memory verse, this mantra, reasoning really matters. Paul says why being ashamed of the gospel is completely unnecessary and out of order and wrong-headed. For the gospel is more powerful than any of us realize. And our boldness increases as we realize what it is and what it does. The gospel, verse 16, is, firstly, the power of God. He doesn't say it contains the power of God or the gospel is one powerful tool in God's toolkit. No, it is the power of God, God's almighty, unlimited power. It's therefore not just a power among others. It's not a power comparable with human strategy or persuasiveness or coercion used by many world religions. Remember last week... In the gospel, the message and the messenger are united in the person of Jesus. The message is Jesus. The messenger is Jesus. Who can say Jesus' words are less powerful than Jesus himself? The gospel has the power and authority of the person of God. And God's word to the world, Jesus, is intended to do what? What does it do? Verse 16, it saves. 
salvation. It does the mighty work of bringing salvation into the world, making children of darkness, children of light. Ephesians 2, Paul's summary, we were dead in sin until God made us alive with Christ. You can't persuade someone spiritually dead, entice them to come to life. How does it happen then? By what means? By this gospel. God's saving word to the world, Jesus. No wonder Paul was thanking God for the Christians in Rome. No wonder he was enthusiastic about seeing them, having prayer and Bible study meetings with them, serving alongside them. They are the product of God's powerful, transforming work in the world. This is a very special group of people in Rome. Paul knew in these Christians, God's work has been set in motion. And so he anticipates God's power would remain in motion among them. Golden days, strengthening, opportunities, growth, harvest, salvation. Now, one of the Avengers, Iron Man, he has this incredible source of power that he puts in his chest. Occasionally it comes out and he gets in trouble. It's in his chest and it explains what he can do. Paul's power is not in his title as an apostle, uh, nor a minister's in his role as a minister. God powerfully works through the gospel, whether this gospel is coming from the lips of a 10-year-old child or a great apostle. I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God to bring salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. It's like a dinner bell that calls the campers in for their, into the dining hall. So the, the gospel rings out from bold Christians and bold churches daring to let the world know of it. And God uses that message to draw in those he intends to save. Satan is powerless to do anything but watch on as his own is adopted by God. Christian eyes spiritually opened, the path to God and his righteousness suddenly obvious. All our lives trying to be a good person and suddenly righteousness is gifted to us. I read verse 17. For in the gospel the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. A righteousness that is not by merit, not by being a good man, good woman, good girl, good boy, but a free gift. It's remarkable. We tend to take faith for granted once we've been Christians for a while. But just as a baby's first breath is important, so too it is important to continue to breathe. Faith starts and continues through our Christian life. A Christian with little faith will enter heaven because Jesus is sufficient for that journey. The adoption has been done, the transfer made. But a Christian with little faith will miss much joy, much comfort, much purpose, much fruitfulness and peace. Oh no, someone might say, a, a breathless Christian. This is all going wrong I'm facing scary prospects. I'm not valued. No one cares. I can't see my way through this, these circumstances. This is happening. That's happening. But the Christian who has developed 
faith observes the difficulties and will say with the very same difficulties going on, as are my days, so shall my strength be. Your rod and staff, they comfort me. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. His grace is sufficient for me in my weakness. Faith in God, trusting God is the way in, and trusting God is the way on. It may be, by the way, that some of who have come to church for a long time may never have been, become a Christian. Maybe you've been in this church a long time but have never be, actually become a Christian. I don't mean to offend by saying that. Or perhaps you've come along and you thought you were a Christian and, and you're, you're not. I say this because I was reading Martin Lloyd-Jones this week who said that he thought he was a Christian for a long time before he realised he wasn't. He was a church-going man, probably a good citizen. He went on to be a great preacher. But he had never called upon Jesus for forgiveness and eternal life. He hadn't been born again. It upset him to realise that when it was pointed out to him, but he said it was very good that he did come to that realisation. If you might be the same, don't let the question rest. Call out to Jesus through this simple message. Come and speak to me or an elder, the pastoral team, a mature Christian friend, a parent. So where were we? Anticipation, boldness, great gospel expectations for what God's, God might do among us for his name's sake. But I can't help but think there may be some among us who think, David, that was the great apostle Paul. That was a legendary early church that had special empowerment in the first century by the Holy Spirit. That was then, this is now. I'm just me. We're just us. Churches in the West are in decline, haven't you heard? We're a modern society with modern sensitivities. Our culture doesn't respond to the gospel anymore. We've got to tone it down if we're going to attract people and keep them. Friends, it seems that's what every generation says when I read books from the 18th, 19th, 20th century. And meanwhile, the gospel, the old, old, powerful story of Jesus and his love, marches on and does its work. The gospel alone explains every person's place in heaven. And so, friends, we are right to expect much from it. And we are wrong to hope a diluted gospel will work. God hasn't changed. His gospel hasn't changed. The world hasn't changed. Sydney isn't so far removed from Corinth or Rome where the gospel was called offensive and foolish. Paul, who says, follow me as I follow Christ, is seen not to be an exception, an exceptional Christian. So much as a disciple, we are more seriously to imitate. I've been learning a lot from Spurgeon over the last year and sharing often with you quotes from Spurgeon, and I've got another one today. But I think he would have us see Paul's example not as some ancient, mystical, unattainable, ultra-super-Christian, but I, I take it he'd say to go for it, go after it, go after his example, in his own words. The fact is that if we had personally known the, the Apostle Paul, we would have thought him remarkably like the rest of us in God's chosen family. And after speaking with him, we would have said, his experience is much the same as ours. He's more faithful, more holy, and better taught in God's word than we are. 
but he has more, he has much the same, if not greater trials to endure. Thus, don't look upon the saints of old as being exempt from difficulties, weaknesses, or sins, and, and don't regard them with such mystical reverence that you nearly become an idolater. The level of holiness they attained is possible for us, for we are called to be saints by the very same voice who called them to their lofty vocation. What might God do if we shared Paul's anticipation about our coming months and years of church life? What might God do if we shared Paul's boldness with his powerful message? What might God do? I don't know. But wouldn't it be good to find out? Let's pray. Our great God, you are awesome and mighty beyond words. Uh, The scriptures provide the attempt of man with your spirit's help to expand our minds to the reality. Father, we believe. Help us in our unbelief. Uh, We seek to be unashamed, but find we often are ashamed. We pray for your spirit's help, the same spirit who formed the Apostle Paul, transformed his life, that it would continue, he, the Spirit, would continue to transform our lives, that we might imitate the example of Paul as he imitates the example of the Lord Jesus. Lord, give us great sensitivity and love in our world. Help us to really uh, avoid being judgmental and help us just to share the love and forgiveness of the Lord Jesus without diluting his message of judgment and love. And we ask in his name. Amen.